Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. This episode is part of a limited series featuring CTOs in the greater Seattle area. We will be digging deeper into the challenges, opportunities, innovations, and the future of tech. Who better to lead these conversations than Fuel Talent's very own Albert Squires and Derek Stevens. We hope that you enjoy the CTO limited series of the What Fuels You podcast. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Derek Stevens, and welcome to the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest is Mark Adams. Mark is the Chief Operating Officer at Adaptive Biotechnologies, which is a commercial stage biotech company that aims to translate the genetics of the adaptive immune system into clinical products to diagnose and treat disease. Prior to joining Adaptive, Mark served as Managing Director of Healthcare Advanced Analytics at SVB Lyrinc, a health and life sciences focused investment bank. And that was since April 2018. Before that, uh, he served as Chief Information Officer at Cellmatics, a women's health precision medicine company from September 2016 up to that April 2018 date. And at Good Start Genetics, a molecular diagnostics company, uh, Mark holds a Bachelor of Arts from Oberlin College and a PhD from Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, in addition, Mark more recently was nominated for the CIO of the Year Award here locally with the Puget Sound Business Journal. So good to have you, Mark. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. This is going to be fun. Yes, this has been something that uh, I've certainly anticipated. I think what Adaptive has done as a company and continues to do uh, is just amazing stuff. And it's really outside of, I guess, what you would call like the sort of the normal box of, of you know, technology companies uh, in our market and really globally. Um, I know this is the CTO sort of series that we're in, but considering you've filled so many different roles. I thought you could offer such an awesome perspective and a unique perspective um, to our listeners. So I'm really excited. Well, great. And like I said, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. It's going to be fun to, to talk to the, to the, the listeners. Um, you know, I'll say the interesting thing about adaptive biotechnologies is it, it lives kind of at the intersection between uh, a number of different things, right? It, it exists at a conflict and it really exists solely because the techniques and technologies have evolved to the point where you can do these things, right? So that makes this adaptive kind of a unique end of one company, right? Um, yeah. in, in the sense, we live at the intersection between sort of modern molecular biology, um, next generation DNA sequencing, all of the fruits of the human genome project and beyond, and artificial intelligence, right? And, and next gen computing technology and things like cloud computing with our partnership with Microsoft, for example. like. These two things, simply neither of them existed at a point at which they'd be sufficiently mature to do what we need to do until relatively recently. And so what that means is it's a unique place with a unique mission. I think as you, as you nicely said uh, so perfectly, like it's leveraging the immune system as a unique diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the reason that our bodies can respond to something like, you know, brand new disease like COVID 
um, that had never been seen before is that the immune system is constantly sort of shuffling its genes all the time in order to respond to these new threats using, you know, next-gen DNA sequencing and artificial intelligence. We can track those new, you know, those, uh, those uh, genomes like little license plates or barcodes and then using machine learning, you can say, hey, look, how do we associate those findings with things like disease, COVID, cancer, uh, increasingly other rare and very difficult to diagnose diseases. So it's, it's an amazing waterfront, right? Yeah. Well, and, and on that note, um, I, I know that uh, there was the, was it the T-detect uh, COVID test, right? Which right. obviously very relevant and very pertinent <laughs> to what's going on right now. And from, from what I understand, it's the first clinical T-cell-based test to confirm recent or prior COVID-19 infection. Uh, is that, did I nail it? Was it that, was it that is, right? you, na you nailed it. I, what's, what's super interesting, Derek, is um, it parallels the story of some of these other you know, novel technologies that have been employed to fight COVID. And we're in a unique time in history, right? We're in a global pandemic but we're also a unique time in history where a lot of tools have matured to the point where they can be used. So I like to compare adaptives like uh, BioNTech or, or Moderna with these RNA-based vaccines, right? That technology had been developing and being maturing, but sort of hadn't been used for, a, you know, for an FDA-approved treatment until COVID. But because these technologies were very capable, very mature kind of next-gen technologies, they were very rapidly, I mean, a year to develop and approve a new yeah. vaccine. And by the way, one that's like in the 90s in terms of efficacy, totally yeah. unheard of. Yeah. Very similarly, the T-Detect COVID test was something that we took the, you know, the systems that we'd been building and really intended for other purposes. And in a very short period of time, just a few months, we're able to turn, create a new assay, validate it, and get it approved to EUA, emergency use authorization by the Food and Drug Administration, by the FDA, and get it out. Wow. So these are parallel stories that are both maturing technologies, ready to go. When the time came, the call came, we're on it. Wow. Yeah, just mind-blowing stuff. Um, and and you know, just just with what with everything changing so rapidly right now on the in the sort of COVID landscape, um, to just just to know and just to sit and think about and imagine all of the work that's gone into, like you said, a 90th percentile you know, success rate in such a short amount of time. And just that, that determination, I guess, of our collective spirit. I know there's been a lot of divisiveness and all of that too, that, that has emerged with this, but man, it's so cool to just hear of so many, um, so many people focused on rallying to find a solution and the way companies have come together, like you have with Microsoft in that partnership, for example, um, where did this all start? Right. And how did, like what? What would? What does the beginning of something like that look like? Maybe starting with just kind of childhood. And when you talk about science and technology, what did that look like for you as far as your curiosity, your interest in those things, your passion? When do you remember maybe earliest memories of kind of like maybe building and breaking stuff or whatever that might look like for you? Right. Well, a just uh, Derek for the podcast listeners. Um, I wouldn't recommend that the obvious way to become a CTO is to get a PhD in molecular biology. <laughs> like I, I just, you know, just a little piece of advice. Um, you know, I have been a scientific and a technical kid, like literally my whole life. I'm just one of those kids. And I, I will say, you know, I, I, I think my father was a little disappointed I didn't become a cowboy, you know, because I grew, I grew up in Colorado. You know, okay. my father eventually had a ranch between Colorado Springs and Denver, but uh, neither me nor my brother are cowboys, as you can tell. Um, 
but you know, like you say, building and fixing things were just something that I did. In fact, one of my mother's things, she always remembers me very early, is me sitting on the ground and taking the vacuum cleaner apart. Not because it was broken, but because I just wanted to figure out how it worked. What was inside, yep. Yeah, putting that vacuum cleaner back together was not so easy. Yeah. <laughs> it was something I did a lot. But, you know, you, you got to realize like this, you know, in, this, in the late 70s, and when I say mid to late 70s, right? Computers, electronics, all these things were very emergent, right? They just, as, as, as if the very young version of me, you know, when I was, I think I was six or seven years old, the public library in Colorado Springs put in one of the first electronic card catalogs and these big wang, like streamlined space age terminals that you'd use instead of the card catalog. I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Now they made a slight error at the Colorado Springs public library. And that was, they put the manuals for the thing on the shelves. So you could like go, couldn't check them out. They're on the reference shelf, but you could pull them down and read them. So of course, being an inquisitive like kid, I started reading those manuals from end to end because wow. it was interesting. Where are you? I couldn't touch a computer any other way, right? So, uh, but that also, uh, I've discovered that the service passwords were written in the manuals. So needless to say, oh, man. Uh, my mother my mother got a phone call and, and made come and get me from the library because um, I, you know, had broken into the system and was figuring out how to expunge <laughs> my fines from the library system. So, you know, Computers always had been a fascination, right? Um, similarly, biology had always been a fascination, right? Like we had a, a little pond near the house and I would ride my bicycle with like big mason jars and I'd fill it with crawfish or pond water or whatever and bring it home and put it in an aquarium and I had a microscope and I would look at the things in there. Like, so I always knew I was gonna do something in that space. The thing that's fascinating, Derek, is like fast forward to like the late 80s, you know, the mid, mid, mid to late 80s when I was in college and there was this sort of emerging concept of the human genome project, right? Just starting to emerge the idea that, oh, maybe we could figure out some really important things by applying computers to, to biological problems. But there were certainly no programs. And in fact, there really wasn't even a computer science program at Oberlin where I went uh, until I was a senior, it was a math thing. Um, but the beauty of liberal arts is I studied biology and computer science and the classics, by the way, love the Greek and Romans. Wow. Classics, not a great job. So probably just as well that you yeah. do that. But, you know, again, like, hey, you're living in this time. You think about like the emergence of the personal computer in the late 70s and early 80s, the emergence of sort of genetic engineering, right? About the same time, the Human Genome Project, kind of late 80s, early 90s, it started to get going. You know, when I left, grad, when I left uh, undergraduate to do grad school, I literally like, I'm gonna get a PhD in computer science or I'm gonna get a PhD in molecular biology one or the other. And frankly, I decided to go biology because getting a PhD then in computer science actually lowered your income potential. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, you might as well just spend that time as a professional software engineer to make more money. So sure. like, you know, by the time I was done with grad school, um, you know, the human genome project had gotten going at Baylor College of Medicine where I did my PhD, like literally one floor up from where I was doing my research. There were all these guys trying to figure out how to use computers to solve genome problems. And you know, I got to know those guys, obviously, just in grad school, and they were insistent. They're like, oh, you have to do this. You know, there just aren't that many biologists who can program computers and so on. So I will say at my thesis defense, I defended my thesis, uh, and uh, <clears throat> most of the people on the thesis committee, when they found out I was going to go do a postdoc, I went to, to Boston to do a postdoc with 
a guy named Temple Smith, who's the grand old man of DNA sequence analysis. The Smith-Waterman algorithm is like kind of the, the bedrock wow. of, of analyzing DNA. People were like, you're committing career suicide. You can't mess with that computer stuff. It's going nowhere. <laughs> this was, well, by the way- I got the last laugh on that one. Like, seriously, dude, this is like 1994. Yeah. Like, you know what was gonna happen next in computers? So at any rate, <laughs> lots of people give you bad advice. That's my, my podcast listeners. Uh, people give you bad advice. <laughs> yeah, really, really interesting. As far as your, and it's funny that you mentioned reading all of those things in the library because I spent all my time reading the back of baseball <laughs> cards. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about your journey to, and I, when I say CTO, that I feel like that's limiting because you've been CTO, CIO, COO. So maybe just that whole C-suite um, what was your early career like as far as once you got started out of college, maybe postdoc, um, and, and, and you got into the working world, how did that start off for you? And did you know kind of early on that you wanted to ultimately be in executive leadership? It's a great question. I will, I'll tell you, if, if you spoke to my, to my PhD mentor, right? The one thing he always says about me, um, and, and we're kind of together on the faculty at Bentley now, like he runs the Center for the uh, Integration of Science and Industry, and I'm a visiting faculty there. So I'll periodically go and lecture there and so on. But he always introduces me and he always reminds me of this fact. He says, Mark was always the only graduate student who'd walk into the lab with a copy of the Wall Street Journal under his arm, right? Like, so, I, and I, told, I made no bones about it. I'm like, I'm not gonna be a faculty member, which he thinks is very funny because now I'm a visiting faculty member. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna be a faculty. Like I'd always known I wanted to be, you know, I'll say air quotes in business, right? Like I wanted to be an industry to do that. And then I'll, and the reason for this, frankly, was I regarded the industry as better resourced, like, especially in like, you think about genetic engineering, molecular biology or, or software industry, just as where kind of the resources were. And I regarded as industry as the place where things were happening. Right. So with, with that in your mind, like, like I had that as my intent, I went and did the postdoc to sort of get some credentials, get to know some people in, in the informatics space, but with the intent in Boston of, you know, uh, getting on board in a biotech company, I'd actually done some consulting for a biotech company as a, in, in postdoc called Insight in Palo Alto, one of the first commercial gene sequencing companies. They've re-emerged now with a portfolio of things that they discovered thanks to their first cut at the genome. And they've got a bunch of cancer drugs, which are going through the approval process wow. in FDA. So it's a very interesting story, right? But so... Again, you know, uh, you know, for, 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 for the what fuels you listeners, um, I'm not sure this is good advice, but I'll tell you what I did. I said, well, I finished my postdoc, and then I immediately took an executive position. Oh. Now, that executive position was in a company of six people, because we started a company called AlphaGene, which was, a, again, meant to be a small, scrappy DNA sequencing company. We were trying to do kind of what Insight was doing, which was get that genome quickly, figure out what was going on take some patent positions and license the data. Like that was the model. Um, you know, it, it sort of, you know, I don't know, whatever else you might expect. It, it sort of fizzled, but whatever. But the point is like, I started there with an executive position. I turned around and, and took an executive position at another startup. This one had 14 people, um, but that startup Verigenics, we ultimately got to about 150 people. We took it public in 2000. We you know, had a drug that was in, in, in process of the FDA. So like, for me, frankly, it was the choice I was making. And I very deliberately sort of was like, hey, what, what, how am I going to get to where I want to go, which is a leadership position 
really pushing the cutting edge of science and specifically, I would have said bioinformatics, computational biology and genomics. And my view of that was like, hey, start small and build the company up yourself, you know, rise up. By the time we're, you know, by the time I left Ferrogenics, I was a vice president, right? Like now the next step, and this is, I think, something that the listeners will find interesting, like here you are, you know, you've, you've spent, you know, a, a, I don't know, half dozen years or something between a couple of companies, a little more than that. You've got an executive, so you're a VP. What do you want to do next? And my next thing was I said, well, I want to work at a pharmaceutical company with even more resourcing in as pharmaceutical companies were starting to work in genomics and gene therapy and things that I have experience in. And I went and got some advice. I said, well, to the, the time, the then CEO of the company, I said, I'd really like to sort of go to B school. I had my eye on going to Sloan, which was there in Boston. It was MIT, so it was very technical. Can I get a reference? And he's like, sure, I'll, I'll write you a, a letter. But he said, you know, you're going to need a couple of things if you want to go work at a pharmaceutical company. One is you need either a degree or some experience in, in senior level management. And the second thing you're going to need is some gray hair. Now, <laughs> podcast listeners, you don't see this. I've got plenty of gray hair now, so take that box. But he gave me a very good piece of advice. He said, look, you can go to B school, but you really need about another five years worth of seasoning. And by the way, if you go work for a management consultancy, uh, they'll train you. You'll walk out of there with the equivalent of that, of that business degree, and they pay you to do it. And by the way, five years is a good number of years to get you sure. over that 30 plus thing, as I was less than 30 at the time. So sure. good, good advice from this guy. I went to all the consulting companies. I just sort of li literally did the rounds, as you might expect, in Bain, BCG, McKinsey, Booz. And Booz Allen said, look, why don't you come on board and start a bioinformatics practice? We don't have one. Let's see where it goes. Okay. Again, remember that startup thing? I like starting things. I like getting in there. I like like N of six, or in this case, N of one, heavily resourced business and an opportunity for me to really learn like about executive leadership, like just go be a management consultant, learn to do that. And they have an extraordinary training program. I mean, I always say it's being at Booz is like being in the military, right? They'll like just work your way up in ranks. And I find myself using what I learned at Booz Allen, for, I spent a decade doing that, right? You know, those five years, I blink and it's 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I find myself using the executive management, the executive leadership techniques that I learned at Booz Allen every single day. Hmm. So this, this guy I talked to like was not wrong. You know, it's interesting too, when I look at your, there's a common theme that I'm hearing as you talk about sort of all of these steps throughout your career, even your education. And that is, it's almost like this, this innate, um, like I talked about before, instinct where you're like, I can bring more to the table than what they currently have, right? Yeah. Like I can come in and actually contribute something new. It's not, hey, how do I fit into their puzzle or how do I fit into their, the landscape of that company? It's this entrepreneurial drive to go in and actually create something. And, and in, in the case of booze, you actually went in and they asked you to do that. Yeah. But I'm wondering what else, um, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's maybe in frontline management or a young manager, young in their career anyway, and they have aspirations of being in leadership, you know, obviously that that entrepreneurial spirit, at least if they want to be in growth type of environments, is part of it. What other like advice would you give somebody that's not the, just the typical, hey, work hard, show up on time, you know, be good with people. Don't sleep at work. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't play Farmville on the couch. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so look, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a piece of advice, but this is a piece of advice that like we actively exploit here at, uh, at, at Adaptive Biotechnology. So 
one of the things that, that we're trying to do is to create opportunities for infiltration and experience in our own young leaders, the people who are promising. And this might be like young frontline leaders, but it may very well be somebody in the lab or somebody who's a software engineer who has an interest in leadership and management. So we've got a whole lot of these programs that are meant to sort of everything from doing, I, we, we walked people through a bunch of business school case studies that were relevant, that came out of biotech. Uh, you know, we, we had a case study contest, basically, where people did case studies, very much like B-School. Um, I've been really lucky. My, my wife is a management consultant, like hardcore for real Z management consultant from Pricewaterhouse originally, with an interest in organizational design. She's a big reader of business books. And so she's been kind enough to run a business book club for the up and coming leaders here at Adaptive, just as a thing to informally once a month read a business book get together, discuss it, and specifically discuss how its learnings apply or don't apply, like where there's a problem at, at, at Adaptive. And it's been a great opportunity to sort of teach people the language of business, Derek, right? I mean, for the podcast listeners, like a big part of being um, a, a, you know, a business leader is un just like anything, is understanding the language. So we read Jim Collins from Good to Great, for example, like learning about the flywheel and the hedgehog concept. And just how do you talk about that? Like, how do you talk about business strategy? The benefit we get from that, Derek, frankly, is that means that when these young leaders are learning, especially technical people, I mean, eh, those of you on the, you know, <clears throat> what fuels you podcast, we're talking to CTOs, technical people are notorious second guessers of senior leadership. Sure. Believe me, I know. <laughs> um, but teaching young people about what does that language mean gives them the armamentarium to discuss with these leaders, like, hey, what are we thinking about our strategy? How do you apply it? What does our flywheel look like? Um, you know, we talked to Jim Collins. We read uh, Larry Bossidy's book on execution. It's my actual personal favorite business book, bringing kind of the GE, Allied Signal Culture. Uh, we read Switch by the Heath Brothers. We've also read topical books like The Antidote, Barry Worth's book about Vertex. Again, for people who haven't worked in biotech, learning what's biotech like is really useful. Uh, we read Radical Candor by Kim Scott. So like... I really believe, like my advice to people who are up and comers and really want to learn is learn the language. And you don't need to read business books. That's what I like to do. But you can watch podcasts. There's great YouTube videos, especially ones that relate like this. It's like the What Fuels You podcast. Listen to the What Fuels You podcast and listen to these people talk and understand the language and the approaches they're taking. You may not be right or wrong, but you should know it. Um, I think is the biggest single thing you can do hmm. because it gives you, obviously, say templates or frameworks. My, my, when I was at Bridgewater, the guy I worked with there was a really big template and framework person. And he was another man, ex-management consultant. But he gave me a real appreciation of how the hardest problems in business can be, you know, can be a framework can be applied to break it down into simpler pieces that you can then go solve one at a time. Yeah. Great lesson. You learn it by getting engaged with, you know, all of the, uh, you know, all of the information. So like, I, I just think for, I mean, again, for us at Adaptive, I mean, we really, really want Everybody, we have a, we have a transparency culture at Adaptive. One of our core values is like you know is is all around sort of open debate, right? And you can only have useful uh, debate is just an argument if nobody's informed. Like sure. what a waste. Yeah, debate like good open debate is when the discussion is informed, not just by the information behind it, but also the structures and forms you use to carry that debate out. So for us, we make a big investment in our people to learn how to do that and participate meaningfully, right? Yeah. Yeah, really, really good. Um, 
what would you have, is there anything you would have focused on earlier in your career now that you, now that you look back in terms of your own development? And I see, I see you chuckling <laughs> and everybody chuckles at this. Cause when people ask me this, I'm like, Oh, where do I start? You know? Yeah. Um, I was going to say everything. Can I please start over Derek? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but no, just, just, Hey, knowing what I know now, you know, there's like, for me, I, I look back and there's a couple of things where I go, Oh, there, that just that one pivotal moment. If I would have gone a little bit differently there may be some things in my life in that aspect of my life might have turned out a little bit differently or I might have accelerated my growth better or more right um, anything like that for you that immediately comes to mind well okay so like thing number one is I have this thing where I go back and I look at the stock price of companies that I chose not to work for <laughs> yeah and add it up I probably shouldn't do that yeah, yeah. Um, like time machine no, there no you know I mean frankly, I think there are a couple of things I I, you know, I would do differently, like whatever. Like I, I think the couple of things I would do differently is one, um, I would have learned more about finance earlier on, business finance, right? Which I which I did not do, and in fact, really didn't really do until I started working in finance, right? But and by by this I mean I just kind of I guess as a young person like. I let the CFO kind of deal with it. I never really learned very much about how businesses are financed. And right now I know that now, and I did learn that subsequently, but I think I would have had a much better understanding of kind of how the inner mechanisms of, of the businesses worked if I had learned more of that. So piece number one is if you're, if you're like an aspiring executive coming to a real understanding of like how the financial machinery of a business works, um, I think bears an enormous amount of fruit. That's one. Two, again, this is something that I sort of came too late, but um, but I wish you know I wish it it hadn't taken that long. Is um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of non-technical uh, leadership skills in tech that I think go under recognized or under realized. And I think especially as an executive in a software company or an executive in a biotech company, we tend to be consumed with that business but there's a whole lot of soft skills. It's like learning about high EQ leadership, learning about empathy. Um, I look back at, at, at some of my not shining moments as a young executive and say, I could have done better, right? I could have done better in being more empathetic. I could have been better in, in learning more about high EQ conversations. I could have been better about really diversifying our workforce. Like this became a thing later on. And this is something that I'm really committed to now, but, but Derek, I wish I'd been further ahead of that curve then. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's a tough, that's a tough one as a leader and having run teams myself, just that, that, you know, understanding how to walk that line of, and, and it, it used to be that it seemed like it was a, an either or choice of like, be empathetic, or be a strong or, leader, right? Right. Where right. now it's like, no, 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 like, empathy is a strength in leadership. And um, there's a way to do it right. And there's a way to do it wrong. And I think that, yeah, sometimes it's just go through it and look back and go, okay, I have to learn the hard way from that one. Right. I know. And I, I think this is a benefit. I think that frankly, the younger people who are contemplating being executives have some great role models. Now I've just mentioned Absolutely. Kim Scott, right? Like Kim Scott, her book uh, is a masterwork. I think on radical candor is a masterwork on how to be an empathetic and effective leader, high EQ, and effective. Um, and and it, honestly, like, you know, and I, I, I did a couple of years at Bridgewater, which is a radical transparency culture. Um, 
one of the most interesting experiences of my life, right? Because I mean, this is a very, this is a place where everybody lives a very examined business life, every aspect, you know, you're challenged every decision you make, every meeting you get is rated and you get to look at your, your baseball card, haha, that's what we called it, like, you know, your, sure. your ratings, and you could see how terrible you were like every day. And I did a lot of personal growth and learning that way, but it was exquisitely painful. Like yeah. it was like, and people at Bridgewater are like, hey, it's like going to the gym, right? If you're gonna get muscle, it doesn't feel great. I'll, I'll say like adaptive is a transparency culture, but it's also very collegial. We have fun as a core value at adaptive, okay. right? Like we really value it. Yeah. So I look at like, I think, you know, what was going on at Bridgewater, which, which I really enjoyed. Like I will, I will say I did not, I disliked it. I really liked working there, um, but it was very difficult because, you know, I suck. And like finding that out was not a lot of fun. Sure. That said, in a collegial environment where people are supportive and they're transparent, and this is a radical candor thing, people are helping you out. They're like, look, I want you to do better. And as part of wanting you to do better, I'm gonna tell you these things that you could do better. And it's done in a spirit of openness and transparency, but also in collegiality. Um, it, it actually, you do a lot of personal growth, but it, it, does, it doesn't hurt as much. Yeah. Man, no, that's good. That, that's, I, I reflect often on that too. And that's um, just another reminder to, to sort of always be like, be mindful of in a leadership position. And so, no, I love that. I have one more set of questions I want to jump into. And this is where I think we can talk about some more, uh, you know, with regard to what's going on right now, as far as, you know, we're, we're in a, a market that's obviously loaded with a lot of startups. I want to talk about, you know, scaling through multiple funding rounds. That's one thing I wanted to talk about just because we have a lot of listeners who are in that type yeah. of an environment, um, building, you know, remote teams that are engaging, right? Well, this is obviously this last 18 months or so has been a, a crash course on that for a lot of us. Yeah. And then, and then, and then even talk about really that the age of machine learning that we're in before I want to get into those like three core questions though, I have a couple just fun rapid fire questions. I'm going to throw at you quick right. answer. No need to, no need to feel like you have to go super deep on these first computer you ever owned. Can I, can I say borrowed because I, borrowed. I, I learned, I learned to program 60, 6502 assembly language on a command sciences Kim one, wow. which was the demo board for the 6502 that ultimately was in the Apple II and in a number of other computers of that era. But yeah, that was, I now have a reproduction of one, which I play with occasionally. My kids oh, think I'm crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Smartphone question, Apple, Samsung, or other? Uh, I'm an Apple guy. Apple guy. Okay. If you could have one meal any meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, any meal, what would it be? Soylent. Really? Bet nobody answered that before. Nobody's ever answered that. I've never heard <laughs> that. That's why we do these questions, because if everybody answered the same thing, this wouldn't be any fun, right? Uh, something you do outside of work as a hobby, interest, or some study that you have maybe that maybe even your coworkers may not know about. Oh my God, at the risk of getting me in real trouble with my coworkers. Um, um, I recently built a modular synthesizer and have been learning to play avant-garde experimental music on it. And I, I will go one step further, a, a, a very good friend of mine from college, remember I went to college at Oberlin, so a lot of people were very musically inclined there, I was not. Um, and I've been collaborating on uh, an avant-garde symphonic piece, so. Wow, okay, so there are, well, of, of those four questions, three, I had, they, they just completely came out of left field. I was <laughs> by them. That's the goal though. I love that. 
Um, now you're going to have people probably researching how to do that stuff, which is awesome. One question we get a lot from people, um, even when we consult with our clients on their hiring goals, right? We're partnering obviously on, in, in, in a lot of ways with companies that actually want our insight on how to grow and scale teams. Mm. And one of the questions that comes up probably more than any other is how do you grow aggressively through multiple series of funding? And it's not so much a how to, because that's a very loaded long question, but maybe some of the challenges and maybe even advantages when you're hiring people and attracting talent to being in that situation. Well, that's such a good question. I mean, what an amazing time to be, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, if, if I compare this even to sort of when I sort of first began being aware of this stuff, and again, that would have been like the early to mid eighties, right? Think about like how the availability of capital, venture capital, and all of these new things, and not just IPOs, but things like SPACs and other ways to sort of turn that into real money has evolved recently, right? Like it has evolved, the availability of that capital to do just what you described is a new phenomenon, right? So as a result, I, th I think you've got to sort of create the rules, right? It's, it's not like there's a rule book, right? Oh, you should just read this rule book and I'll tell you how to do it. Sure. That said, here are the three things that I would really consider. And, and, and for the sort of what fuels your listeners who are thinking about this stuff, like number one, decide what you are and be that, right? So flying from one of my favorite movies, like, like decide what you are and be that. Are you a company that is building to flip and you want to build value very quickly because you're like, we're going to get acquired by Microsoft or whatever, and you're going to flip it. You want to think very carefully about the investments that you're making when you expend that capital. Right. As opposed to, and, and I'm not saying either is right or wrong. I, Jim Collins would argue one's right or wrong. He's like, oh, you shouldn't build a flip. You should build a last. I'm actually saying, I, I think they're both perfectly reasonable strategies. Sure. You should pick one. If you're saying, hey, we're going to build this thing to last and we're going to build it for growth and it's going to be the first in its industry and we're going to continue to own the industry, like maybe with, like you said, an eventual IPO to cash out. Those two strategies have very different implications with regards to how you grow, how do you staff, what compensation do you provide your people and what forms does it take? So decide what you are and be that very early. I, I think if you don't, you run a risk, yeah, right? It's great. Thing number two is no matter what, you need to be very, very strict with regards to how you extend that, like what you use that, you expend that capital, right? I, my rule for this is don't buy Arion chairs. Just go buy your furniture at Ikea, right? Like whatever. You, you should not be spending money on things that don't matter. Yep. spend money on things that matter. Now, now we'll get to point three. You know what matters? People. Companies are people. And I'm saying this as a tech guy, as a biotech guy, like everything else. It's like, you know what? People matter. In fact, people, I would argue the only thing that matters. Hmm. So the time that's spent really thinking carefully about what does this team look like? How's it going to be composed? How are we going to find people? This gets back to the point I made originally, looking deeply into like business theory about what makes teams tick. Uh, diverse teams, for example, do better. You can prove it with math. So you got to think about how are you hiring a diverse team? How are you managing it? Like teams matter, people matter, right? Where you should, so now you're thinking, well, if I'm not buying area on chairs and like ping pong tables and stuff, what am I supposed to do with all that money? You're focusing on building really solid teams and those teams are aligned with the mission. Remember at the beginning, decide what you are and be that? Yes. No matter what stage you're at, whether you're ranging you know, you're, you're raising angel capital from Dennis in Nevada, 
all the way up to like, hey, we're series C++ and we're getting ready to like hop on an IPO. Every single thing you've got to be very clear to yourself and able to express to others, whether it's the people you're recruiting for a team or the people you're selling your IPO to about what you are. Yeah. Honestly, this is the kind of, you always hear this, like you go to the top of the mountain and, and they ask the guru yeah. and he says, know thyself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's all. That's, that's it. That's right? really it. What about this, this sort of, not, not sort of emergence, this full on blitz of remote engagement now, right? As a company <laughs> and not just like, Hey, I got a few remote employees here or a few remote employees there. Companies are now shifting their entire strategy to say, we're a remote concept. Like we are a virtual concept now in the terms of how we, how we team up. Um, that in sort of with this backdrop of trying to still create culture, not even backdrop, front drop, hopefully, right? Of creating a culture and cultivating a culture that is tight knit. And, and this isn't something where there's probably a direct answer, but just more of what are your thoughts around this as you ponder this now as a leader? My thoughts are number one, like we're going through this, Derek, like we're thinking very hard ourselves about how do we make this work? And, and I'll say again, you, there are a couple of key considerations here that you, you want to leverage. Consideration number one is, I believe, and this is sort of Mark's opinion, and, and, and you know, this is something that, that we're working on here at Adaptive, but I want to represent it just as my opinion, that having an understanding of the nature of work that each individual does and the way that they add value will help the individual's manager make good decisions about whether that's something that could be reasonably hybrid or offsite or remote or not. I don't think anything that's just like a giant sweeping, we're all hybrid or we're all remote or we're all not make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Sure. And in fact, generally, I don't think that that's something that like me as like senior leadership should just decide, right? What we want to do is create a set of like framework. <laughs> Remember back to that. There's a framework. The framework for that is what is the nature of this work? How's it best executed? How does that map on to a, to a person's work day? And then make good decisions and give that person options for how to do that. That's point one. Point two is um, you want metrics and KPIs. In other words, I wouldn't do that unless I could say, yeah, and I can measure how well that work is being executed. And this is true no matter what. I mean, this isn't just for remote work. You should do this all the time anyways, but it's rendered really acute when you say, hey, this person's going to be outside of my direct supervision. And I think there is an illusion by, and I'll speak for myself and saying some old school people who are like, well, as long as I got my eye on that person, I can make sure yeah. they're working. Yeah. Those are people who aren't acquainted with the with the boss key. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the one that throws a spreadsheet up on top of doom or whatever, right? So yeah. Yeah. I think you think you can see more than you can really see. That said, have concrete metrics. Mm. Um, I will say here, like, we have the benefit with software engineering of having a lot of very concrete metrics. We can look at, you know, we can push pull requests. We can look at GitHub updates. We can look at ticket closures. Like there are all these quantitative metrics. And you can very easily say, hey, how does the team do? We had a year of pandemic. We can say, how did that do compared to the previous year? Yeah. Um, so when you've got quantitative metrics, apply them. And then finally, be open to change. Be open to the fact you might be wrong and prepare your plans accordingly. Wow. And, and what I mean by this, Derek, is the same team may do great for one set of purposes. And then you find, oh, man, now we've got to get them on site to do something on site. Build and prepare your plan to allow that change, right? So um, I, yeah. from my perspective, 
between saying, thinking very carefully about the nature of the work and providing a, a management mechanism that's very close to it to make decisions, have solid, clear, and, and comprehensible quantitative KPIs to make sure that things are going well or not, and then be open to changing that plan when needed. That's great. That's great. I know for us, I mean, we the the, the remote element broadsiding has forced us to create new efficiencies so that, hey, we right. could actually get insights, like measurable insights into what we were doing, into everyone's activity and productivity. We're, in, we're obviously in a really interesting fun age of artificial intelligence, machine learning. And the questions that we generally ask around this are like, when do you and when do you not uh, imp start implementing some more of these advanced technologies with ML, AI? And then you know, what do organizations and teams need to do to prepare for that and need to do to start embracing that? Um, maybe just talk about the role of AI and machine learning in what you do and maybe quickly touch on your evolution within that space and then where you see that taking even the adaptive companies like adaptive with biotechnology. I think it's a great question. I, the one thing I like to always remind people is like artificial intelligence, machine learning are, are just tools in a toolbox, right? The, the data science tools in the toolbox, there are uh, uh, statistical tools in the toolbox. All of these things are mechanisms to, you know, analyze data and generate a result, like a recommended course of action, a classification or whatever. And so there's nothing, I always say there's absolutely nothing magic about artificial intelligence. I, and, you know, my arm you're going to laugh about this. Like I, I studied artificial intelligence. It was one of the things I was really interested in as an undergraduate in the early 80s, mid, mid to late 80s, basically. Like I graduated in 89. So like learning about AI at that time, this is Ronald Hart McClellan and parallel distributed processing and early neural networks and, and, and genetic algorithms, that kind of thing. Expert systems, <laughs> believe it or not, I learned to program in Prologue. Old school people on the podcast will know what I'm talking okay. about. Um, but that said, fast forward to like when I was finishing my PhD and I hadn't done much software work. It was all laboratory work. I was doing a, studying human gene therapy, doing genetic engineering of viruses. So I didn't really use do a lot of software engineering. I was preparing my resume to go into computational biology jobs and I included my artificial intelligence experience. And I was told strongly under no circumstances to take it out because nobody would take it seriously. AI has become a joke. Like you gotta take it out. So I took it out, like, all right, like whatever. Fast forward to 2012, thank you, Jan LeCun and deep learning and all of that stuff. Suddenly people are like, oh man, we need artificial intelligence people. Like, I'm like, hmm, I've been at this for 20 years almost, right? So I, it comes and it goes. These things are fads and fashions. And the truth is, I think as you know, Derek, the hardware in the form of GPUs and cloud computing and the ready resourcing of massive amounts of compute and the, te the techniques kind of caught up with reality to where you could start applying artificial intelligence tools for real substantial business benefit. And so it, it came in from the cold, right? It was like, it was totally uncool and now it's cool again. So I'm very yeah. glad to say I, I'm an AI guy for way back and I'm cool again, kind of. Um, at, so you say at Adaptive, how does that apply? Like, what, what are we, artificial intelligence tools, and by that broadly, machine learning, GANs, like a whole wide range of, of techniques enable us to do something like 
How do you look at the, as I said, like the license plate or the barcode on every immune cell in your body? You've got a trillion cells or so immune cells in your body with millions probably of unique genomes. That's a frequency graph. You count them. How many times are there copies of these? But it's a million columns long. This isn't anything you can do analytically. It's nothing you could do in an Excel spreadsheet. A person couldn't look at it and make anything of it. Classification by tools like machine learning are the logical approach. Say to compress that data down, to associate it like, this is what the pattern looks like in people with COVID. This is what the pattern looks like in people who never had COVID. Machine learning algorithm can distinguish the two from that data set trained on your source data sets, and you end up with a very high level of fidelity. That's why we have such a high quality test in the T-detect COVID test. Mm. Same thing is true for a variety of other things, a very flexible technique. So now then you say, well, what do you need? Well, we need people who understand not just how do you run a neural network, how do you train it, but how are these things constructed? What are the kind of the, the patterns, what are the frontiers of their utility? When would you choose a GAN versus a deep learning network versus logistic regression? For us, it is a very advanced tool and it takes a person who both understands how to program those tools, how to use them, but also understands their limitations. Right? This is not, you know, I, in some sense, I love people like, for example, who like are Kaggle champions. Why does Mark like Kaggle champions? Because they've been forced to actually think about how to actually apply these things to actual problems and get actual results. These aren't just toy problems. They're yeah. real problems in the real world. And plus all the trash talk gives you a lot of practice. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. talking about it in meetings. Yeah, man, so cool. Um, I think your energy, your your style of leadership, your outlook on business as a whole, all of, all of what we discussed here today and so much more, um, I think just... I think it's such a fresh approach and fresh perspective. Before we go, though, I do want to know, hey, what are your current needs there at Adaptive from a hiring standpoint? And you're probably going to say everything, but um, that's what most people are saying right now. We're growing incredibly fast. Right. I, you know, if, if, if I look and say during the pandemic, we, we grew by, you know, I mean, we're a company at the time of about 500 people. We grew by 200 and something people in, in less than a year, right? So we're, we're really, really growing. That said... The, the particular things I'm the most interested in are, uh, we're obviously interested in software engineering talent, in specific uh, software engineers who have a few years of experience under their belt. Um, and, you know, particularly in the, in the sort of traditional backend, frontend distinction, but also we're looking for people who have experience with streaming analytics. Uh, we use the Confluent Kafka platform. Uh, it is a very interesting piece of software. People who uh, know services-oriented architecture were in the process of converting a number of sort of formerly monolithic systems into services-oriented architecture. People who have exposure to messaging bus and like techniques and technologies. So when you think about like, we are very rapidly evolving this business uh, into a rapidly scaling business can accommodate all of these amazing new tests that we're building. And we need people who can help us do that. So. Uh, as you mentioned before, people with experience in implementing machine learning. In particular, Microsoft, our partner, uh, is doing the exploratory work, but turning the exploratory work into production systems that incorporate artificial intelligence is a pretty bespoke technique and talent, but it's very interesting and very useful. So we're all big into that, but we need automated testing people. We need, uh, you know, I would say like the more traditional front end, back end type. We need SQL people for relational databases. So like all of that stuff. And then besides, I'm putting my apps, ops hat on. We're always hiring 
uh, talented lab people who want to come and work in the laboratory. Uh, you know, we're doing some really interesting stuff, next-gen sequencing and analytics and so on. So, boy, I, I'd say if this even seems interesting to you, you like a culture that has sort of transparency and has fun as a core value, I, I come to our jobs page and take a look. I think there's a million things. There, yeah, there's a ton there. Guys, if you're listening and any of that sounds interesting, you have that resonates with you and you say, well, I know that that's right in my wheelhouse or that's something that I'm interested in exploring further. You want to have a conversation by all means, um, go over and check out what Mark and his team have available. So, and, and that website is adaptivebiotech.com and click on the join our team button. Awesome. So cool. There you well, go. Ladies and gentlemen, he's Mark Adams, COO at Adaptive Biotechnologies. This has been uh, such an awesome hour. Thank you again, Mark, for joining us. And I want to thank, uh, you know, all of the Wet Fuels, you listeners, for listening through to the end. Thank you for listening to the Wet Fuels, you podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.